millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnan, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges confronting Australia and the Indo-Pacific region. Today, I get to pass a little bit of a career milestone where I get to interview General James Clapper, the former Director of National Intelligence for the United States. General Clapper is currently being hosted by the National Security College and is an ANU Visiting Vice-Chancellor's Distinguished Professor. Uh, General Clapper served as the fourth Director of National Intelligence from August 9, 2010 to January 20, 2017. And in this position, General Clapper led the United States intelligence community and served as a principal intelligence advisor to President Barack Obama. General Clapper spent 34 years in the service in the U.S. military. He was in the U.S. Marine Corps and also the U.S. Air Force, where he served as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. General Clapper also returned to government two days after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, and he was the first civilian director of the National Imagery and Mapping Agency. He served in this capacity for almost five years, transforming it into the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which is what it's called today. Now, before I speak to General Clapper, I just want to thank everyone who has been in touch in the days leading up with questions for Mr. Clapper, as well as suggestions for future podcasts. I will be including a number of those questions in the coming discussion. But if anyone has any thoughts that they'd like to offer on what we discuss today, or what you'd like to hear us discuss in the future, you can get in touch with us by hitting us up at Twitter at AppsPolicyForum forum or by Facebook using Asia Pacific Policy Society or by using email using podcast at policyforum.net. And while I've got you here, I also want to tell you about something that we've got coming up. The National Security College is soon to be hosting the Women in National Security Conference. And this conference is completely sold out. And the best way for you to get involved in it, if you are not lucky enough to have tickets, is to listen to our special series that we will be conducting that week, where we are talking to a number of leading women from the international security community. And we'll be publishing their podcasts all throughout the week and we'll also be doing some crossovers to the conference where we'll be speaking to some of the keynote speakers, some of the uh, secretaries of departments and also some of the audience to give their thoughts on the issues that they discuss at the conference which are national security issues facing Australia and the world and also um, some of the gender aspects about being a woman in what has traditionally been a man's industry. Uh, So we will be doing that starting now next week. But for now, let's go and speak to General James Clapper. G'day, General Clapper. 
Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Uh, it's great, great to be here, and thanks for having me, Chris. This is actually the third time that you've been hosted by the National Security College. Uh, the first time you were still actually serving as Director of National Intelligence, and the second time it was very soon after you retired, which was around about the same time that uh, Donald Trump took office as president. The joke around here was that you were actually getting as far away from Washington as you possibly could at the time. Uh, this that's, time is more than a joke. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, this time you're actually back just after you've uh, released your book, Facts and Fears, Hard Truth from a Life in Intelligence. And just to note that I know that our students, both the policy practitioners from the national security community that do our professional and executive training courses and our postgraduate students here at the college get a lot of t- lot out of the time that you spend with them and the experiences and advice that you offer to them and share with them. So I do say with full sincerity that we are really happy to have you here and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, believe me, it's very gratifying uh, to me uh, and uh, the whole experience here with uh, the National Security College has been very rewarding for me. So I've just finished reading your book, Facts and Fears, and it was a really compelling read. And I really do hope that the optimism that it concludes with is satisfied by future events. But what I really enjoyed most or actually respected about this book was your willingness to confront head-on the questions or criticisms that you've faced over your 50 years uh, in intelligence. You give full disclosure of your role in the intelligence failures that lead to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. You explain blow by excruciating blow how you gave that faithful, fateful response to a 2013 Senate Select Committee on Intelligence regarding the collection of metadata generated by US citizens, and you are 100 percent clear on why you feel the US response to Russian interference in the US elections is legitimate without denying that the US at the same time has a history of intervening in the politics of other countries. I won't go into those details now. I'll let people read them when they hopefully get your book and read it themselves. Um, and they can even disagree with your conclusions. However, no one can claim that you've avoided any of the tough questions and no one can claim that you've tried to avoid any response responsibility for your actions. And I think that's one of the things that made the book so gripping and such a rewarding read. Well, thank you. You do mention early on in the book that you've always felt that intelligence officials should not do speaking tours and should not actually write books in their retirement. <laughs> so what happened? Well, that was under uh, the more uh, conventional history uh, of our country uh, that preceded uh, the election of Donald Trump. So um, my father was uh, served in the American Army as an intelligence officer for 28 years, and I served and uh, worked in the trenches of intelligence for every president since Kennedy. I was a political appointee in both Republican and Democratic administrations. And I spent during all that time, uh, over 50 years, uh, defending uh, institutions and standards and norms of our country which are under assault. So I felt uh, this was a unique circumstance and I felt a sense of duty uh, and an obligation to uh, speak up and and to write the book. Uh, I'd seen a lot of bad stuff in my time in intelligence, but nothing that disturbed me as much as uh, the, the magnitude of the Russian interference in, in our election and the new administration's reaction to it. So I decided I need to do my little part 
whatever I could do to try to educate the American public about the, the, the jeopardy to our institutions. In, in response to the Russian interference in the 2016 elections, President Obama expelled a cohort of Russian intelligence operatives from the US and also closed some facilities that were known to be used um, by Russia for espionage. However, since his inauguration as president, uh, Donald Trump has seemingly gone out of his way to undermine certainty that Russia was responsible for any interference at all. Without a clear and credible message of deterrence from the White House, is it likely that Russia will replicate its behaviour to influence the coming midterm elections and the 2020 presidential elections and American society in general? Well, the Russians will keep at it in terms of influencing attitudes in our country. Uh, and they've continued that, you know, exploiting the, the tribal divisiveness and the tribal polarisation in our country. And regrettably, we're a very uh, ripe target. I don't see them... Uh, uh, with the focus on the midterm elections in terms of outcomes because the midterms are much more diffused in that you've got 435 members of, co- of the House of Representatives running and about a third of the Senate. So it's a little harder for them to pinpoint each one of those uh, separate elections in the, in the manner that they did and could during a presidential election where there's really only, they were interested in one or two candidates for the position of president. We don't have that in the midterm. So I think they'll continue to exploit the polarization and divisiveness in our country in any event. But uh, in terms of trying to influence election outcomes, I, I, I don't see that uh, with the prevalence that we saw in the uh, 2016 presidential election. You've mentioned in your book the response that President Trump had to the report that you and your colleagues made about the Russian interference in the 2016 elections and and the open attacks that, that he made on yourself and some of your colleagues. Have these attacks on the intelligence community caused any real and actual harm to the community in terms of like morale, prestige, ability to recruit? And most importantly, has it impacted the faith the American public has in the intelligence community? Well... Uh, I think the the difficulty that President Trump had, uh, which was uh, exhibited when the four of us briefed him on January 6th of 2017 at Trump Tower, and the four of us were John Brennan, then director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Jim Comey, then director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and Admiral Mike Rogers, who was then director of the, our National Security Agency, and I were the team of four who briefed President Trump on the findings, principal findings of our intelligence community assessment that we also published in an unclassified version of, of that that afternoon. And he just could not accept uh, anything that would serve to cast doubt on the legitimacy of, of his election. And clearly the Russian interference, which we laid out to him, uh, had that impact. And while our president has not been uh, a stalwart for consistency and during the course of his administration, one thing he hasn't been consistent about is, a, is an unwillingness to accept the evidence, however, however overwhelming, of the Russian uh, interference. Uh, that is uh, a concern, and while much has been done in our country on, an, on a component, government component by government component basis to secure our election uh, apparatus, 
the absence of a strong, uh, forthright statement by the President of the United States, uh, I think, marginalizes the impact not only of the intergovernmental response, but for that matter, inter-society, because this needs to be a societal reaction. And I think the absence of that is is uh, dangerous. As far as the impact on the intelligence community, I think that has uh, a concern. I have less concern about that now since the intelligence community has not of late been in the crosshairs. I do worry about the Department of Justice and the FBI, which has been the uh, focus for a great deal, a steady stream of, cr of criticism and undermining by uh, the president. You know, the polls would indicate that uh, right now the American public seems to have a, um, a fairly high uh, level of confidence in uh, the intelligence community. It does place a burden on the leaders of the intelligence community to try to provide the top cover so that the community can continue to provide truth to power even if the power chooses not to listen to the truth. You've mentioned – and, and I completely agree that um, the president's response to information saying that uh, Russia did attempt to influence the outcome of the election and he has defended himself ever since then. The strange thing for me is that even before the election and the result, uh, the pres or Donald Trump was still showing uh, a lot of sycophancy towards, towards Russia and being very warm to a leader that your average American would be repelled by. Now, I know you're not a psychoanalyst, but why do you think that Donald Trump seems to be so attracted to, to people that are otherwise abhorrent? Well, that's obviously uh, the, the question of the hour uh, that uh, lingers right now. And it's my fervent hope that the Mueller investigation will uh, in one way or the other, clear this cloud that hangs over the presidency, over President Trump, his presidency, and our country. And I don't know. Uh, there's all kinds of speculation about uh, why he appears to be so deferential to Russia and specifically to Putin. I think his, his instincts are probably uh, autocratic. So autocrats right now seem to be more appealing to him than uh, Democrats, uh, liberal Democrats uh, in the small L, small D sense. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the mystery. And, uh, you know, during the campaign, it was, and I recount this in the book, the uh, striking parallels and similarities thematically between what the Russians were doing and saying and what the Trump campaign was doing and saying. And uh, devote a whole chapter to outlining, describing those parallels and similarities. I don't allege collusion, don't know that. But it was striking, particularly with respect to the attacks on Hillary Clinton. Yeah, as you've said, we, we don't know and we don't allege collusion, but you can definitely see that there is a reason to ask the question whether it actually existed. Exactly. Now, you also mention uh, in, in your book many times where the media has been careless in reporting of facts, uh, where it's preferred sens sensationalism and confected gotcha moments rather than actually focusing on substance and important issues. And quite crucially, you go into detail about how the media has been complicit in divulging highly sensitive secrets about US intelligence methods and programs. With that as the backdrop, how do you now defend the media against President Trump's attacks where he calls them the enemy of the people? 
Well, all the criticisms that I uh, levy towards levied in the book towards the media, uh, you know, I still believe that was uh, the case. And what occasioned that primarily was um, revelations caused by Edward Snowden. And it became clear to me that the uh, definition of what threatens or jeopardizes national security for me was much different than, say, that of the editors of the New York Times or Washington Post. That's just uh, just the way it is. Unless I could provide them compelling information that someone's life was in jeopardy if they published uh, some information. Otherwise, that didn't meet their threshold. So that's just the way it is. I will say, though, again, because of the unique uh, history that we're experiencing now and the unique presidency that we're experiencing now, unlike any other, that I now believe that the, uh, the role of a free press is, is as important, maybe more important than it ever has been. And, of course, another irony uh, that, that you – imply or infer is uh, now I'm part of that. I'm part of the media because, again, for reasons I outlined before, I feel it was was my duty to speak out. So I have been uh, um, an active commentator on, uh, on CNN. Now, I will come back to the, the current climate in the US and the Russian interference in the, in, into the election, but I, I actually want to start talking about the profession of intelligence and some of your experiences as well. And this particular question actually comes from one of our students here at the ANU. His name is Kent, and it's a great question as well. How do we balance between values and interests when determining policies for the inter- intelligence community to follow? How do we strike the right balance between providing security, respecting privacy, and maybe even having to sacrifice some values to satisfy high-end national interests? Well, I think that's, it is a great question, and it's also one that's uh, it's hard to answer. I think there are sort of two dimensions to this. There is the foreign dimension, and then there's the domestic dimension. And let me take the foreign dimension first. And I'll go back to your mentioning of, uh, well, of course, the Russians interfering in our election and then the, the history of our interfering in the political processes uh, of other countries. And I, I cite a very credible study. It was done by a think tank in which, the, which recounts some 81 instances uh, over many decades in which, to one degree or another, uh, the United States attempted to influence the outcome of uh, election or uh, other governmental process. And I think for me, and maybe this is naive, altruistic, I don't know, but I always thought that for the most part, not in every case, but for the most part, the United States was doing, was taking such an action because of the oppression of the people uh, in a particular country or the abuse of their their civil liberties. That was maybe not always the case, but that was, I think, ultimately the uh, the motivation. And as well, particularly as time, more time uh, went on, there, there were more and more regulatory oversight mechanisms that were imposed on uh, the United States conducting such actions. So yes, there is a trade there between uh, what's ideal and what's what's practical or what's pragmatic. Similarly, in ter- domestically. Uh, there is a balance to be struck by civil and privacy on one hand 
and safety and security uh, on, on the other. And there is no silver bullet simple answer uh, to that. And again, there are all kinds of regulatory mechanisms involving all three branches of our government to oversee the intelligence community to ensure that what it does is legal, moral, and ethical. And that to the maximum extent possible, uh, civilities and privacy are protected. Some years ago, I spoke at a trade association, and uh, this was in the year or so after Edward Snowden's revelations in uh, June of, of in the summer of 2013. And I said, it seems to me the message that we take away in the intelligence community is what the public expects us to do is to provide timely, accurate, relevant, anticipatory intelligence, but do it in such a way that there's no embarrassment if any of it's revealed, do it in such a way there's no risk, and do it in such a way that there's not even a scintilla of jeopardy to anyone's civil liberties and privacy. We call that immaculate collection. I meant it humorously, but it do, just to make the point that the precision that we have to act, uh, conduct our business in order to do both, provide safety and security and, and afford and, and ensure safe, civil liberties and privacy is a difficult one. So these the question that Kent raises is, is, a, is very good, it's very thoughtful, and, and it's also very complex. Talking about um, immaculate, immaculate collection, as, as you name it, does setting such a high bar drive the intelligence community to always do better and have really high standards, or is it just setting itself up for failure and then damaging its reputation when it can't meet such such high standards? Well, there's a certain amount of uh, there's always a certain amount of risk in the intelligence business. It's one of the things that makes it interesting and challenging because. Under the best of circumstances, you're always dealing with uncertainty, with incomplete facts. In fact, I've often said that, in its probably simplest terms, the reason we do intelligence or Australia does intelligence or any nation state does intelligence is to try to reduce that uncertainty for a policymaker. In our case, where the policymakers sitting in the Oval Office or sitting in an Oval foxhole, if I can stretch the metaphor. And you're always going to be dealing with uncertainty and incomplete information, and that will be parlayed or shared with the policymaker. Um, so there's always risk that, you know, you're going to be wrong, you're going to make the wrong call, and certainly, uh, you know, history is replete with cases of that. You already cited the weapons of mass destruction in, uh, in Iraq, uh, the National Intelligence Estimate that was, we published in October 2002. Uh, but that's, you know, we like the, the intelligence community, I think, is a learning organization just as the intelligence enterprise here in Australia is. And that's what you have to do, is learn from mistakes and try to avoid them in the future. As you just brought up in the book, you do go into great detail about the intelligence failures that led to the, or partly led to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, but you also make mention of administration officials that were pushing a narrative of rogue WMD programs in Iraq and pressuring the intelligence community to find evidence of these programs. What was driving the enthusiasm for the invasion of Iraq and why was there a political desire to make the case now and worry about the intelligence later? Well, uh, you know, you'd have to ask members of the administration, but there was very, very, very clear that... Uh 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There was a determination that uh, um, Saddam Hussein needed to be uh, overturned. And, uh, you know, I... I I take um, at face value the belief of uh, those in the administration who, who genuinely believe that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. And I, I really can't gauge a measure uh, to, to what extent that belief uh, influenced the intelligence community. There, there was clearly a receptive audience for uh, that message. Uh, the errors we made, though, were um, – you know, self-induced. Uh, we made our own errors, and it just happened we played to a narrative that uh, the, the then the Bush administration wanted to hear. So it was kind of the perfect storm um, in so, that so sense. So it, it was their fear of of Saddam Hussein having these weapons. There was no strategic mindset about um, influencing the region. I, or anything I, like I'm that. not a mind reader, Chris. I don't know what led to uh, th- those beliefs. Uh, there were those, though, who strongly believed that or behaved as though they strongly believed it and were looking outside the intelligence community for evidence to support their belief. And so when the Weapons of mass destruction and national intelligence estimate, which my fingerprints were on, was published. That that just added to their their strong conviction, and I think reinforced the uh, move to invade, which I think they pretty much made up their mind about anyway. I know that you're aware of uh, Bellingcat.com. They are an online organisation that offers uh, training in citizen investigations, and they have recently been able to unmask the Russian GRU agents. GRU is essentially the Russian military intelligence, and these are the people that were responsible for poisoning the former Russian agent Sergei Skripal in the UK with the Novichok um, poison. Uh, There was a recent similar investigation carried out by BBC journalists into a horrific execution of civilians in Cameroon. Uh, This particular investigation was carried out by using open source geospatial imagery that could be manipulated to determine where and when these executions occurred and opened the way for journalists to then determine the identities and the units of the soldiers that carried out these crimes. I'll I'll be putting the links for these investigations on policyforum.net so people can go in and check them out and I really encourage you can to do that because it's really quite remarkable what citizens are able to do these days with the tools that are open source. Now, using these two examples, um, we see today that capabilities available to leading states only as, as little as 15 years ago are now available to anyone who has a computer and access to the internet. How will open source geospatial collection capabilities and the and access to unfathomable amounts of data change the way states behave and carry out intelligence collection and analysis? Well, what this all represents is uh, whether we like it or not, transparency. 
Uh, in our country, ever since uh, a decision was made by then President Clinton in 1996 to allow commercial providers to conduct uh, overhead imaging, and of course that that and of course the the growth of the internet. So that has promoted, whether we like it or not, a lot of transparency. It exploits the signatures that every human being on the planet who's you know, ever touched the internet leaves, whether they want to or, or not. For the intelligence community, it has profound implications because the, the whole notion of uh, aliases, uh, doing business undercover, air quotes, is increasingly not possible. And the only way that intelligence agents uh, can conduct business is when they live their true identities because their electronic signatures that they leave before they become intelligence operatives is too prevalent and too easy to acquire. So it's a great thing for transparency, and you're quite right to point out that these were capabilities of not until fairly, fairly recently only available to nation-state governments. Now they're available to private citizens. So in this case, the cases you cite, well, this is for a good reason. Uh, they uh, reveal wrongdoing. But the same capabilities also serve to point out how difficult it is to maintain one's privacy. In your book, you mention the the difficult impact uh, that the movie Rambo First Blood 2 had on some of your responsibilities as uh, director of the Defence Intelligence Agency. You also mention watching the movie Charlie Wilson's War with Mike Vickers, who is one of the characters portrayed in that movie. Do you ever watch movies or TVs, uh, TV shows about intelligence work? I'm thinking shows like The Americans that um, talk about Cold War, movies like Zero uh, Dark Thirty or Enemy of the State. Do, can you watch these movies or do you just cringe when you see the way? Well, I watch them uh, and I cringe because rarely are they ever accurate. Uh, oh, Dark Thirty, uh, great movie production, but not accurate. Uh, Enemy of the State uh, actually was pretty was particularly damaging because it described way more capability than we actually have, uh, either from a technical capacity standpoint or, or what's authorized in, to, to, in terms of ability to monitor citizens. But a lot of people uh, believe that image. So in some sense, movies and their their whole point is to be profitable and to be as entertaining and, and in fact, sensational as possible uh, turn out to be uh, inaccurate. But that's not the point of the movie, uh, to necessarily to be accurate. Uh, some are, but uh, mostly I, I find myself, when I watch these things, uh, thinking about uh, checking off all the inaccuracies. It drives my wife crazy if we go to movies and, or watch them together. Yeah, I completely understand being an ex-soldier myself. I cringe when I see people in the movies making an accurate shot at 300 metres of a moving target with a 9mm pistol or something ridiculous like this. Um, Or the 97-shot six-shooter in in our westerns. Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting that um, you focus on enemy of the state. Uh, I remember when MH370 went missing in the Indian Ocean and people simply couldn't believe that we couldn't just take pictures of the whole world and answer a question of, where anyone was right. at any given time. Right. And and 
the fact that the aircraft hasn't been located has actually driven the conspiracy theories that it's somewhere in a hangar in Uzbekistan or something like that. Mm. What, why do you think people these days are becoming more increasingly available to these really bizarre theories and fantasies? You know, I honestly don't know, uh, Chris, but it, to me it's a, it's a serious problem in, in our country because there is a, a sizable segment of our population who seem to revel in wacko conspiracy theories. In fact, this is one of the, an overriding concern I have with uh, things in the United States today is because of, of the assault on truth. So those domains which concern themselves with empirical fact, empirical data are under assault, meaning science, academics, journalists, law enforcement, intelligence, uh, to name five domains that rely on empirical fact empirical data. And, and increasingly, uh, the, the, the truth that they try to deliver is under assault because of the proclivity for belief in these wacko conspiracy theories. People gravitate to them and want to embrace them even in the absence of empirical fact. And that is very dangerous for our democracy or any democracy. Sometimes it honestly feels like to me that the enlightenment is being rolled backwards. Rolled backward. You've, you've been very clear uh, throughout your career and in your book that serving intelligence officers are not to offer policy advice. Now that you're no longer serving, you seem to have a lot of informed and thoughtful policy advice to offer. Um, is it a curse or is it a luxury that some of the most informed people don't get to offer advice on what are often really complex and esoteric matters for national security? And does the nature of the current administration challenge the conventional thinking on this issue? Yeah. Well, uh, it's been at, at least in U.S. intelligence annals, and, and I think here in Australia as well, that uh, policy and intelligence are separate. And the intelligence officer tees up the information, tees up perhaps some opportunities or options, but it's up to the policymaker to decide on what yeah. either to do or to do nothing or to, or to pick some option. And that is not up to, up to intelligence. Now, there were times I I tried to be uh, very selective about when I injected myself in the course of policy deliberations uh, in the White House when I was DNI. But I always made it a point to say, hey, I'm speaking out of my lane now. Uh, I'm not speaking as the intelligence officer. I'm just offering an opinion. If I had one that I thought you know, had, had uh, something to offer, uh, particularly on uh, North Korea, for example. But generally speaking, it's much better to keep those two realms separate. You just you just mentioned North Korea, and you have spoken a lot about North Korea. You have, you have quite strong feelings. You have a, a lot of history going back with the, on the Korean Peninsula. You were uh, hopeful that engaging North Korea and the summit between President Trump and Chairman Kim Jong Il was going to lead to a breakthrough. Uh, we'd breached an impasse, and this is possibly the only way we could do it. Have you been surprised, shocked, or encouraged, or discouraged by the way um, things have progressed since that summit, or is this what you'd expect well, to see? Well, I, I think I've been uh, encouraged by uh, the behavior of late of North Korea, but I ascribe it much more to uh, President Moon in, in the Republic of Korea, who for, who, for my money, is 
one of the more astute presidents ever of the Republic of Korea. And I think he's managing his two portfolios, the one in Pyongyang and the one in Washington, very well. And I credit him with uh, more than anyone with uh, this uh, moderation of North Korea's behavior, uh, not necessarily President Trump's threats or tweets or any of that sort of thing. I think the fact that North Koreans have not conducted any nuclear tests underground or, or missile tests, the fact they returned the 55 remains, they released two hostages, they've tempered their behavior, and they are getting on much better with the Republic of Korea. All is a good thing. All bodes well. Most significantly, the parade commemorating the 70th anniversary of the Korean Workers' Party omitted any long-range missiles. I believe the North Koreans are trying to display that they can be responsible, uh, that they could be a responsible nuclear power. Uh, and I also think the reason they have moderated their behavior in addition to the efforts of, of President Moon is the fact that I believe that the North Koreans achieved whatever it is they think they needed to achieve in the way of nuclear deterrence. They wouldn't gauge it or measure it or validate it the way we might, but in their minds, they achieved nuclear deterrence. So for the first time ever, they can come to the negotiating table not as a supplicant, which has always been the case whenever the, the North Koreans have engaged with the United States on nuclear matters. So I was supporter of the summit, said so publicly, but I was disappointed that the president didn't uh, use the, the tremendous leverage he had just by virtue of agreeing to meet, meet with the North Koreans. And he lost an opportunity to, add, to get the answer to the following really important question, which is, and it would be great to get the answer from the horse's mouth, Kim Jong-un, first time ever from the family. And that is, what is it, would it take for you to feel sufficiently secure that you don't need nuclear weapons? It'd be very useful to know the answer to that if we're going to map out a strategy if that's really the objective, to denuclearize. But in the absence of that understanding, I think that's very difficult. And simply demanding that the North Koreans denuclearize and the only promise is we'll be less coercive, I don't think is very appealing uh, to, the, to the North Koreans. So it's a good thing that the, ten the tensions have relaxed, but I actually ascribe much more of that to President Moon. It's quite common to hear discussion in Canberra these days of what is called the new uncertainty since President Trump has taken office. We've seen traditional allies uh, come under public attack from the White House. We've seen initiatives like the Trans-Pacific Partnership trashed and agreements like the JCPOA basically torn up. And we've seen reviled dictators embraced and spoken about in loving, very loving terms. What would you, your advice be to allies and partners like Australia when we ask ourselves how should we now view the United States and how we should judge its commitment to supporting the order that has ensured stability in our region for decades? Well, I think it's useful, uh, particularly now we're well, well over a year and a half into the, this administration, that at least for me is that there is – Things that the president says and does, and then there are things that the administration says and does, which oftentimes are not exactly the same. And in the case of the relationship between Australia and the United States, as I said last June at a speech I made to the National Press Club here, that the pillars of our relationship 
are deep and durable. And I refer specifically, obviously, to our military relationship, our economic relationship, diplomatic relationship, and the one I can speak most authoritatively about, our intelligence relationship. Those pillars, I, I believe, are going to transcend whatever unorthodox uh, uh, president, uh, be unorthodox presidential behavior that we, that we have now. Now, President Trump could easily be elected, I think, to a second term. Well, that, that might change uh, that outlook. I also, when I, I'm, I'm being I, at risk of being presumptuous here as an American, I've also said to Australians when I've been asked that I really shouldn't spend so much time wringing uh, your collective hands about you know the changing American behavior because I think Australia underestimates itself in terms of the influence that it has and the leadership that it it can exert to fill the alleged void left by uh, the United States. Yeah, absolutely. The The part of that answer that, that makes me feel a little bit uneasy is actually, actually relates to back to one of the chapters in your book where you relate to the unpredictable instability of the moment. And part of that is this confluence of really uh, complex and interconnected challenges that we're seeing in the world. Some of them are state-based, some of them are non-state-based, some of, uh, um, of them are mother right. nature. However, you are also talking about certain divides that are really starting to become exacerbated in the American society and whether that's inequality, whether that's economics and whether that's rural and public divide. And some of that has manifested as a rejection of globalism, something that I don't think people really understand what they're talking about. If they use the internet, if they buy clothes or anything that are bought in different countries, mm -hmm. then they're partaking in, in globalization and it can't be turned back. When I look at some of these things that have been happening for a number of years in not just the US, we can't really be surprised that we have populists that are emerging as leaders in these countries. So is Donald Trump a reaction to the times or is he leading change in these times? Well, first of all, the phrase unpredictable instability has become the new norm is uh, something I said in the course of... Uh, my te open testimony for Congress, which I was required to do every year, uh, present an, uh, an unclassified worldwide threat, which is uh, kind of an oxymoron. But anyway, I, I did. And I was really what I was getting at was the contrast with the heyday, the Halcyon days of the Cold War, where we had a, a single all consuming adversary who was really predictable and stereotypical in its behavior. And so it was easy to anticipate, fairly easy to anticipate just what the Soviets were going to do, particularly in a military context, because they were very cyclical. Well, with the demise of the Soviet Union and the uh, emergence of now a truly multipolar world and the tensions and fissures that resulted from that, notably non-nation state threats and the rise of uh, terrorism, and in turn, because, uh, related to that is growing instability uh, around the world. And when I left, there were 60 or so countries around the world that we gauged had exhibited some signs of, of instability. And if you apply the criterion to the United States, it applies to the U.S. as well. So this whole uh, move of populism, of which I think President Trump is simply a, a, a symptom, 
the underlying trends of populism, uh, aversion to globalism, uh, aversion to government uh, is, is the bigger trend. And he just rode that wave and astutely uh, exploited it. You've mentioned in previous discussions that you had two different endings to your book, other than the one that you've settled on. One was darker and one was lighter. Are you willing to give us an idea on what these two alternate endings were? People being naturally risk averse are going to be more keen to hear about the darker ending, of course. And can you tell us why you felt more comfortable with the ending that you eventually chose? Well, it was... uh it ended up as a compromise. It was the only uh, dispute, the only argument or debate that I had with my collaborator, Trey Brown, without whom, by the way, I'd have never written the book, was over how to end it. And the very dark version, at least when I think of a dark ending, gets to uh, some rather chilling parallels between Germany of the 1930s and, and some behavior in the United States now. So that path could be very, very dark. Uh, if we uh, more and more trend towards uh, embracing uh, autocracy. Obviously, the, the happy face version, so-called, would have a sunny outcome where the p- storm of populism will pass and will get back t- to normal. Um, through the intercession of our managing editor at Viking, the publisher, we ended up kind of in the middle, by simply saying that the United States has endured uh, traumas, most notably the Civil War and trauma I lived through, Vietnam, and eventually emerged the stronger and better for the experience. And we just end the book there without making any kind of prognosis about uh, the current uh, situation. Well, one final question. Would you mind signing my copy of your book? Yeah, absolutely. Be honoured to. General James Clapper, thank you very much for being with us on the National Security Podcast. Thanks, Chris, for having me. And thank you very much to General Clapper for giving us that time and being so candid with us in that discussion. I am really keen to hear some of your feedback and some of your thoughts on what General Clapper said. And uh, if you'd like to put your thoughts forward, you can do so via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or Facebook on Asia Pacific Policy Society, or you can send us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. And also be sure to tune in uh, to this Friday's Policy Forum pod. And this is something that's especially interesting to the national security community because we will be taking a look at the public service in light of the public service review. And we're going to be essentially asking what does the future of the public service look like? And on this pod, we'll be speaking to Professor Helen Sullivan. She is the director of the Crawford School of Public Policy. And we'll also be speaking to Professor Glyn Davis, who is the former Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. So be sure to listen to that when it comes out. And we will be back to speak to you next week with our special Women National Security series. Speak to you then.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.